When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who, when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith, declared, I could not be shaken. Now this isn't going to be easy. The fact that they never did fall away did come at a cost. And we'll see that most painfully in chapter 24. The Amalekites and the Amulonites, along with the Lamanites who were in the land of Amulon, so there's a connection to the Amulonites, also in the land of Helam. Remember that's where Alma had gone and set up camp after leaving the waters of Mormon. And that's where the Amulonites had found them and taken over. So when it lists these two cities, Amulon and Helam, we're still dealing with a Lamanite group that is heavily influenced by the wicked Amulonites. Anyway, all those in verse 1 who had not been converted, who had not taken upon them the name of Anti-Nephi-Lehi. And I think this is a statement on their part. The king changed. His whole household changed. I'm not going to change. I wonder if for some people it was easier to convert because you're seeing all the people in positions of power doing it. Well, we're going to be able to plumb the depths of their conversion in this chapter. No summer soldiers are going to stay committed in the war that's about to take place. But all those who had categorically refused to change, rejecting not only these Nephite missionaries, but their Lamanite leaders, they were stirred up by the Amalekites and the Ammonites to anger against their brethren. This is now Lamanite versus Lamanite, but stirred up by apostate Nephites. As a result, verse 2, their hatred becomes exceedingly sore against them. They rebel against their king. They don't want him to be their king anymore. The king converted. The king doesn't want to be a Lamanite anymore. Well, we don't want him to be the king of the Lamanites then. And they take up arms against the people who changed along with him. Now, by this time, verse 3, the king over all the land, Lamoni's father, has conferred the kingdom upon one of his sons. Must have been a wonderful son because he even changed his own name to Anti-Nephi-Lehi himself. This would have been one of Lamoni's brothers. And then the king over all the land then dies in verse 4. His people are now confronted with the fact that their enemies are making preparations for war to come against them. Now in 5, Ammon and his brothers see the preparations of the Lamanites to destroy their brethren. And so they come forward in the land of Midian and they meet together and they have a council with Lamoni, with his brother Anti-Nephi-Lehi. They all kind of meeting of the minds, right? And they discuss what they should do to defend themselves against the Lamanites. Did you notice who instigated this council? It was the missionaries, still concerned about the ongoing life of their converts. It wasn't just, hey, they got baptized and I'm out of here. I'm on to the next adventure. I'm going to go home and live my life again. No, it's what are they going to do from here? I wonder how much of that phrase, they never did fall away, was owing to the continuing concern of the missionaries that brought them the gospel in the first place. That Ammon and his brethren are worried. 
What is this going to mean to them? The change that they have gone through is so beautiful. It's true. It what needed to happen. But talk about a difference, especially since they're still here in Lamanite territory, surrounded by people that have made a conscious decision not to make this kind of a change. This is like one member of the family joining the church, but they're still a part of the family. Does it cross the missionaries' minds? Or the lifelong members that are around there, what this person has given up and what their life is going to look like from here on out? How can we help? How can we support them? Because they will need it. Counsel together on those things. That's an important detail too. The fact that they counseled together about this. This wasn't just the Nephites from their position of spiritual privilege to say, well, these are the things that you need to do to be safe. Allow us to provide everything. We will give you all of the answers. We know better than you do because we've lived this way for a long time. No, it's recognizing the solution lies in you. What do you think you can do? You're the one living it. We care about you. That's why we're here in the council. But you're the ones that are going to have to do certain things. That's why you're in the council too. Let's discuss together the kinds of changes that need to take place to assure your survival. Now in verse 6, one thing was clear. There was not one soul among all the people who'd been converted unto the Lord that would take up arms against their brethren. They wouldn't even make any preparations for war. In fact, their king commanded them not to. Sounds like they didn't need the command. They just, no, that's not who we are. It's who we were. It's not who we are anymore. We'll see later with Captain Moroni how important it is to make preparations for war. So this is not a blanket endorsement of pacifism. But for these particular people, this is what they decided. It's very different than what the Nephites will later decide. Maybe it's different than what Ammon and his brothers might have suggested. But again, we're counseling together. And this is something you feel so strongly about, then we support you 100%. How can we make this a, a reality? Now in verse 7, these are the words which he, the king, said unto the people concerning the matter. Now we don't know much about him. We don't know what his former name was. We seem to know his brother, Lamoni, and his father, king over all the land, far better than we know him. But King Anti-Nephi-Lehi must have been an amazing person. Even to receive the kingdom from his father instead of Lamoni, who we all seem to know and love. But notice what he says. He's basically preparing his people for potential martyrdom. What could you possibly say to convince people to hold to that commitment in the face of death itself? His speech will last from verse 7 to verse 16, and it is moving. As we study it, keep an eye out for things that you would never expect a Lamanite to say. It's more evidence of this mighty change of heart. He begins in verse 7, I thank my God. What a beautiful way to begin this address. With gratitude, with humility. A king recognizing he's not the highest that he's still beneath God. He even calls him God, not no longer the Great Spirit. And it's my God. I have fully accepted him. And better yet, he has accepted us. My beloved people. This is a leader who loves his people. Compare that to what would have been the norm, most likely, among the Lamanites. Remember, Lamoni can kill servants without a second thought. Lamoni's dad was about to kill his own son. But now, my beloved people, our great God, 
has in goodness sent these our brethren, the Nephites, unto us to preach unto us and to convince us of the traditions of our wicked fathers. Again, beautiful phrases. It's God. It's the great God. It's our great God. He is a God of goodness. He sent the Nephites. And who are the Nephites? Our brethren. What have they taught us? That the traditions of our wicked fathers were incorrect. In fact, I'm glad that came from him. Because that's actually a slip. In the past, it's always referred to as the wicked traditions of our fathers. It's the traditions that are wicked, not the fathers. Well, a Lamanite himself, I guess, is allowed to say, ah, our fathers were wicked too. It wasn't just their traditions that they grew up with. Verse 8, I thank my great God, there it is again, that he has given us a portion of his spirit to soften our hearts. Again, that's the one obstacle that no kingly command can remove. We've opened a correspondence with these brethren, the Nephites. Behold, I also thank my God that by opening this correspondence, we have been convinced of our sins and of the many murders which we have committed. We saw that last week, that we don't jump from belief in the Father to belief in the Son. There is an all-important intermediate step, which is belief in sin. Why the Father sends the Son in the first place. Why the Son is necessary to bring us back to the Father. Because sin is a reality. Remember the Lamanites had believed in a great spirit. But they thought that whatever they did was okay. That was the cheap grace, the easy doctrine, the universalism of the Amulonites and the Amalekites. That's apostate Nephites speaking up. But the Lamanites, having learned from true Nephite messengers, realize there is sin. And we were guilty of it. And thank God for a pricked heart. Thank God for a newly sensitized conscience. Is that something that we are grateful for? Sometimes we just want to tamp down the conscience and think, can you be quiet and leave me alone for a while? Oh no. Be grateful that there are those there, especially the Spirit itself, which will convince us of our sins. When my grandma was little, her fingertip got cut off by a lawnmower. They found it. They sewed it back on. It looked totally normal to me as a kid, but I remember my grandma explaining it that it had severed the nerve endings, and so she had absolutely no feeling in her fingertip. And I remember as a kid thinking, that's the coolest thing ever. My grandma's like Wolverine, at least that part of her. It feels no pain. Wouldn't it be amazing to feel no pain? And then I realized later in life, pain is actually a very important gift to the body. Because it alerts us to danger that could do major damage to the body if we didn't feel that warning early on. Some may want a high pain threshold. Nobody should want a high sin threshold. We should want soft and sensitive hearts. We should be grateful that there is a conscience within us and watchmen outside us that are alerting us to the possibility of sin. And even the presence of sin within us to be convinced of that so that we can repent, which is what they did. Verse 10, I thank my God, my great God, that he hath granted unto us that we might repent of these things, and also that he hath forgiven us of those our many sins and murders which we have committed. He's not sugarcoating this at all. He's not self-justifying or rationalizing. We have committed many sins, murders even. And as painful as it was to recognize the error of our ways, by doing so, God made it possible for us to repent. 
So as a result of our recognition of sinfulness, we then were able to repent. And as a result of our repentance, we were forgiven. And as a result of that forgiveness, he says at the end of 10, he has taken away the guilt from our hearts through the merits of his son. Notice he didn't say that he took away the remembrance of those sins from our hearts. I, the Lord, remember them no more, he says in the Doctrine and Covenants. But he never said we would forget them. And that's probably a good thing. If I forgot all my sins when I was forgiven of them, I would probably end up doing something that would remind me of what that sin was to begin with. But to remember that, but not be haunted by it, simply to be warned and reminded by it. The guilt now is gone. It's like Enos. My guilt was swept away. And how is it swept away, end of 10? Through the merits of his son. He didn't say, and now we're clean because we're so obedient. We've been so zealous and so faithful since our conversion. And now that we're doing the right thing, that's what makes us clean. No, no, no. What makes us clean is the merits of God's son. What saves us, even after all we could possibly do, it's the grace of God that takes away our guilt. No amount of obedience on our part will change that past. It's the grace of God that changes it. Now, I hinted at that verse at the end of 2 Nephi 25 in what I just said, that it is by grace that we are saved after all we can do. That's the famous phrase from Nephi. We always seem to quote. You'll see a hint of that phrase in verse 11 here. Now behold, my brethren, since it has been all that we could do. Doesn't that sound like what Nephi said? It is by grace we are saved after all we could do. Well, what is all we can do? Here it is. It has been all that we could do, as we were the most lost of all mankind, to repent of all our sins, of all of them, all the murders that we've committed, to get God to take them away from our hearts. We gave them to him. He took them away. It was all we could do to repent sufficiently. Again, that's a tough adverb. Have I repented? Yes. But have I repented enough? How do I know? Well, my guilt is gone. My stain is gone. Do you see what it is that we can do? And in some ways, all we can do? It's repent. It's to recognize this gaping gulf between God's perfection and my imperfection. That only Jesus can bridge that chasm with his grace. The merits of the Son. He comes and takes away our stain. He comes and sweeps away our guilt. And what is it that triggers that? It's our repentance. That's all we got. It's all we can offer. It's all we can do. But it's what allows grace to save us. It doesn't cause grace to save us. It's not cause and effect. It's what allows the gift of God to finally be received. Our one obstruction, the one thing that keeps free access of God's grace from fully filling us, our hardened heart has been removed. We've humbled ourselves. We've been convinced of our sins. We've repented of them. We've allowed forgiveness to flow. And grace fills that gulf, allowing the Lord to bring us home. And like he said at the end of 11, it's not just the sin that has been removed. It's the stain of that sin as well. Haven't you ever washed laundry and had a stain that just seems set? The object that caused it is gone. 
But ah, the stain has set into the fabric and there's not a whole lot I can do. Blood stains seem to be one that often fits that description. Well, because of the blood of Christ, it's not just the sin itself that's removed, but the stain that sin left behind that is completely gone as well. That's what a change of heart really is all about. That's what justification gets rid of the sin. But sanctification gets rid of the stain of that sin. Justification erases the deed. But sanctification changes the disposition. It's not just that I'm not doing evil. I have no disposition to do evil anymore. That's the process that we all should be engaged in. The removal of both sins and stains through the atoning blood of Christ. Verse 12, now my best beloved brethren. He seems to be getting more and more superlative. You are my beloved people and my brethren. Well, let's just combine the two and intensify them. How, how can I say this any more passionately? My best beloved brethren, since God hath taken away our stains and our swords have become bright, then let us stain our swords no more with the blood of our brethren. He still felt that way about them. Behold, I say unto you, Nay, let us retain our swords, that they be not stained with the blood of our brethren. For perhaps, if we should stain our swords again, they can no more be washed bright through the blood of the Son of our great God, which shall be shed for the atonement of our sins. Oh, this King Antinephi-Lehi has learned his missionary lessons well, hasn't he? Except for one little part that perhaps seemed a little too good to be true. You remember what Alma the elder had learned back in Mosiah, what, 26? That as often as my people repent, I will forgive them. That there's no limit to the Lord's mercy. Now, as clearly as King Antinephi-Lehi seems to understand everything else that the missionaries had taught, I imagine that that was something that was taught him as well. But I love the fact that he does not take that truth for granted. Let's make sure we don't sin again. Because maybe, just maybe, we wouldn't end up changing after that, after going back, the, the dog to its vomit, the pig to its wallowing in the mire. Maybe we wouldn't want to return and repent again. Now verse 14, the great God has had mercy on us. He's made these things known unto us that we might not perish. He's told us all these things beforehand. It hasn't even happened yet. He got his verb tenses correct in 13, right? The son of our great God, which shall be shed. But he recognizes what a blessing to know this in advance. He loves our souls. He loves our children. Oh, we'll see that in an upcoming chapter, since the children of these anti-Nephi-Lehi's will become the stripling warriors. Therefore, in his mercy, he doth visit us by his angels. That's how he described Ammon and Aaron and Omner and Himni. God's angels who have come to visit us in his mercy, that the plan of salvation might be made known unto us as well as unto future generations. Oh, how merciful is our God. This is starting to sound like Jacob now, rejoicing in the Lord back in 2 Nephi chapter 9. Since it has been as much as we could do. There's that same idea. All we could do was repent. It is as much as we could do to get our stains taken away from us. And our swords are made bright. So let us hide them away that they may be kept bright. Remember King Benjamin talked about this so often? How do we retain a remission of our sins? 
It's one thing to obtain it, but how do we maintain it and retain it? Well, this is one way that they were planning on doing so. We will hide them away that they may be kept bright as a testimony to our God at the last day that we have not stained our swords in the blood of our brethren since he imparted his word unto us and has made us clean thereby. There was some sense of sinning in ignorance back when we believed in the great spirit but thought he didn't care how we lived, especially with our consciences kind of plastered over by the wickedness of the Amulonites and Amalekites saying that what we did didn't matter at all. Maybe we're not as responsible for all that blood as we might otherwise be. But now we know. Now we know better. And we need to show God that ever since he opened our eyes, ever since he allowed our hearts to be pricked with feeling, ever since our conscience was given full expression, and ever since he gave us a chance to begin anew, I just want to let him know how grateful we are for what he offered. I want to receive the gift that he's given us of a new beginning. Let's make it count. Let's bury these swords. Now he knows what this means. In 16, he knows his brethren, the Lamanites, if our brethren seek to destroy us, behold, we will hide away our swords. Yea, even we will bury them deep in the earth that they may be kept bright as a testimony that we have never used them at the last day. And if our brethren destroy us, behold, we shall go to our God and shall be saved. Oh, there's so much in that verse. First, the if. If they seek to destroy us. There is a glimmer of hope here that it won't happen. Now, we know the end from the beginning. We know the sad end of this chapter. But he doesn't yet. And having been taught about the power of God, the mercy of his great God. I imagine King Anti-Nephi-Lehi is holding out hope that God just might deliver us, even if we don't raise a sword to deliver ourselves. Maybe the Lamanites won't see us as the enemies they think us to be. Maybe they won't destroy us at all. They'll just live and let live. That was the king over all the land's command, right? But even if not, he says at the end of verse 16, if they destroy us, that's okay too. We'll go to God. We'll be saved. You see this king's faith in and acceptance of either outcome? This is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego all over again. If it be so, God can save us. But if not, we will not bow to these gods of gold. It's all still iffy in this king's mind. We might be destroyed. We might not be. I do believe in God's mercy, but I also believe in the salvation he promises. I believe in deliverance from. I'm hoping for that one. But I'm okay if it's deliverance in, because I believe in that as well. Either way, let's bury our swords and bury them deep. I think sometimes we leave our sins, but we don't leave them very far behind. We bury them in a shallow grave kind of sprinkle some dirt over the top, just in case I want to go back and find them again. I had a friend in college once that was teaching a lesson to the elders quorum about debt and so on. And he said, you know, I take my credit card and I put it in a bowl of water and then I freeze it. I stick it in the freezer and it becomes this huge chunk of ice. And if I'm tempted to buy something I don't have the money for yet, I pull out the bowl and I have to let the whole thing melt before I can even access my credit card. It gives me a lot of time to think, how much do I really want this? 
And often by the end, I don't want it at all. Well, at first I thought, that's a pretty good idea. But then some other fellow elder said, why don't you just microwave it? Think it'll melt in no time. I just kind of laughed. I thought, that does defeat the purpose, doesn't it? But can you get a sense from these anti-Nephi-Lehi's? We don't want the microwave shortcut. We don't want the shallow grave. We want to bury them deep. So we'll never have time to unearth them. But there's even one thing there. For years when I read these verses, I always thought, what a great way to resist temptation. If I bury it deep, then even if I want to go unearth it, I don't have time to do it. But think about this for a second. Do they seem tempted? Remember, it wasn't just the deed that was removed. It was the disposition, not just the sin, but the stain. They have new hearts, new minds, new desires, new name, new everything. As we'll see at the end of this chapter, I don't see a lot of them scrambling to go dig and find their weapons. It was, no, I don't need them. So it wasn't a burial in terms of resisting temptation. He's already said it in 15. He said it again in 16. This was a burial as a testimony to God that we're different, that we accept the changes you've made in us, that I don't even remember the old me. I don't remember where those old swords are. In fact, and this is the most amazing part of the miracle, I don't even remember using them. Now, I'm sure they remembered, but speaking from God's perspective, God doesn't remember me using them. That explains the one interesting shift he says from 15 to 16. In 15, it was, this is going to be a testimony to God that we haven't stained our swords since we were forgiven. But in 16, he says, it's going to be a testimony that we have never used them. It's almost like his understanding of real forgiveness is evolving. It's not just, well, from that time forward, I'm clean. Now, the atonement is infinite and eternal. It works in both ways. You are a BC saint. You just admitted it. And so that atoning grace cleanses things in both directions and leaves no trace, no stain of anything having ever been there to begin with. It's not just that you haven't sinned from that point forward. It's that you never sinned to begin with. Now again, we know better. Our guilt is swept away, not our memory. But God sweeps away even his memory of it. So he would actually be closer to verse 16 than to verse 15. We'd be up there saying, hey, but ever since you forgave me, I did really, really well. And he would say, Forgave you? Forgave you for what? Well, you know, the time that I, I... I don't know what you're talking about. I, the Lord, remember them no more. Well, I, I mean, it's nice of you to say that, but you know that I did. You can't use the words, never used them. You know better. I picture God going, well, I do know a lot. Omniscience does describe me, but I have no recollection of that sin. And for any curious onlookers that are overhearing this conversation, who are they going to believe, you or him? I hope we have enough faith in God's grace to be able to make those same steps that King Antinephi-Lehi did. From a clean sense to a clean forever. From a not since then to a never at all. Now the speech is over. 
and it had its effect. In 17, it came to pass that when the king had made an end of these sayings, all the people were assembled together. They took their swords, all the weapons which were used for the shedding of man's blood, and they did bury them up deep in the earth. No fence-sitters or converts of convenience, after all. This they did in 18, it being in their view a testimony to God, and also to men, that they never would use weapons again for the shedding of man's blood. They never would. Back when 16, they never had. And this they did, vouching and covenanting with God, that rather than shed the blood of their brethren, they would give up their own lives instead. Rather than take away from a brother, they would give unto him. Rather than spend their days in idleness, they would labor abundantly with their hands. Talk about change. And thus we see, Mormon interjects in verse 19. Here's his takeaway. That when these Lamanites were brought to believe and to know the truth, they were firm. They would suffer even unto death rather than commit sin. Thus we see that they buried their weapons of peace. Or they buried the weapons of war for peace. Now I've always chuckled at that. You can picture Mormon going, ah, darn it, it's so hard to erase on gold plates. Now I just, and I already said it, I wrote down weapons of peace. Now I've got to change it. I've got to fix myself. How do I do? Oh, okay. It's not the weapons of peace. Rather, it's weapons of war for peace. See how I did that? Well done in the absence of the backspace button. But I do think it's more than just a slip up and a convenient correction. Think about what he called them originally. Weapons of peace. They got rid of that. Now, is there such a thing as a weapon of peace? The Cold War would suggest that there is. It explains the interesting irony that you have these two world superpowers that keep stockpiling weapons. Weapons that were never used and never intended to be used, but were there in terms of deterring the other from ever using their weapons. They call it mutually assured destruction. M-A-D for short. And yes, that is an acronym they actually use. It is madness to consider this. But Mutually assured destruction. I have enough nuclear weapons to completely annihilate you, and you have enough to do the same. And talk about a convincing deterrent for both parties never to actually use those weapons. These must never become weapons of war. Instead, they will always remain weapons of peace. Thankfully, that worked through the Cold War. Mutually assured destruction has kept us from destruction itself. But there is a problem with that. It keeps us from pushing the button, but it doesn't stop the heart from wanting to push it in the first place. In other words, those weapons of peace might force peace upon us, but it does not make us into peacemakers. It scares us away from the deed, but it does not draw us into a changed disposition. That's what's so powerful to me about things like nonviolent protest. We've seen a lot of protesting lately in current events, both peaceful and not so peaceful. And I understand the anger and emotion that is behind so many of those protests. It's always been this way. There was a Martin Luther King on one side and a Malcolm X on the other. But over the long term, it's only changed dispositions that make the lasting difference. And that's what amazes me about people like Martin Luther King Jr or Mohandas Gandhi. They didn't just opt for weapons of peace. 
They said, we're going to get rid of all weapons. Because even those weapons of peace, better phrased, more accurately stated, they really are weapons of war. And we want real peace. Lasting peace, true peace, inner peace. And the only way to do that, as they exemplified, was a unilateral disarmament, not mutually assured destruction. In fact, in that acronym, perhaps assured destruction still applied, but it was no longer mutual. This half buried their weapons deep. As if to say, if there is going to be destruction, it will only come from your side to ours. And do you understand what that does? That shifts the balance of moral power by shifting the balance of physical power. Any destruction that takes place will be completely on your side. And we will do nothing to suggest that we deserve it in hopes that that pricks your conscience. We feel you have one too, as ours has been awakened within us. That well-meaning observers will no longer be able to sit idly by as fence-sitters, thinking, well, there's problems on both sides. Oh no, it's become abundantly clear. Only one side is stockpiling weapons. Only one has the will and the dangerous disposition to use them. I can no longer be a neutral observer. I have to pick a side, and I will pick this side, because I cannot, in good faith, choose that one. That was the moral power of a Gandhi, the moral power of a Martin Luther King. It's the moral power of the anti-Nephi-Lehi's, and they wield it courageously. And by it, they win. They win. That's the incredible thing. Even in losing, they win. Short-term versus long-term, it's all right here. Verse 20, their brethren, the Lamanites, made preparations for war. They're still stockpiling weapons of war slash peace. Either way, they're weapons. They come up to the land of Nephi for the purpose of destroying the king and to place another in his stead. Oh, and while we're at it, we might as well destroy the people of anti-Nephi-Lehi also out of the land. But notice their first priority, their prime objective in this battle. We've got to kill the king. Now, I would assume that King Anti-Nephi-Lehi probably knew that, probably assumed that would be the case, which to me makes his speech all the more moving. He's not asking them to do something he was unwilling to do. It wasn't bury all your weapons, but I'll keep my guards around me. It was, I'll be the first to throw mine down in the bottom of the pit as well. We'll see in a moment that 1,005 of the anti-Nephi-Lehi's perished in a bloodbath, a unilaterally assured destruction. And if objective number one of the Lamanites was to destroy the king, then you better believe that he was among the slain. 21, when the people saw that they were coming against them, they went out to meet them and prostrated themselves before them to the earth. They began to call on the name of the Lord. And thus they were in this attitude when the Lamanites began to fall upon them and began to slay them with the sword. When I was younger, I thought, wait a minute, they didn't, they didn't have to do that. It was noble of them not to want to fight, but then run. Hide, fight, flight, or freeze, right? Those are the options. Well, they'd already taken fight off the list, but flight or freeze, run and hide? What's wrong with those in this situation? The fact that it doesn't change the hearts 
of the opposing side. In fact, this side running or hiding still allows this side to feel some sense of self-justification that I'm going after them for good reason. But for this side to come forth, as so many Indians did in the face of the British, as so many African-Americans did at lunch counters and on buses and in sit-ins and in marches, to come forth and force the issue, even at their own peril, to boldly declare, I will not run from you so that you cannot run from your conscience. I will not hide from your violence so that you cannot hide from your sins. I will not fight you because you're the one that has to fight yourself. So change, remove stains. Don't just stop sinning against us. Change your disposition, not just your deeds. It is amazing the moral power, the spiritual strength of these, I was going to call them victims, but they're not. They took that away from their enemy, their sense of victimization. They wielded power. This might be the only war that we see that had all kinds of deaths, but no casualties. And they sensed that about themselves. They were winning the war that mattered. Both their own, spiritually speaking, salvation was theirs, but also the war over the human heart, including that of their enemies. Verse 22, without meeting any resistance. Again, the only resistance would be the kind that was self-imposed, which is the only real discipline worth speaking of. They did slay a thousand and five of them, and we know that they are blessed, for they have gone to dwell with their God. Talk about faith in what they've learned from these sons of Mosiah. Faith in the resurrection. Reminds me of Amulek and Alma watching all of these women and children thrown in the flames back in Alma 14. This is the equivalent of that, after all, among the Lamanites. In verse 23, when the Lamanites saw that their brethren, what are we doing fighting ourselves? When they saw that they would not flee from the sword, neither would they turn aside to the right hand or to the left. Again, the anti-Nephi-Lehites were leaving them with no other option. I will not turn and run. I will not fight back. I will not turn to the right or the left because I don't want to give you anywhere to look other than within your own soul. I will stand firmly before you holding the mirror to your own hatred. You have to see who you really are so that you will change on the inside. When they saw that they would lie down and perish and praise God, even in the very act of perishing under the sword, when the Lamanites saw this, they did forbear from slaying them. That was the one thing that stopped them in their tracks. A pricked conscience, a change from within, a softened heart, their own decision to remove the obstructions that had been there before. There were many whose hearts had swollen in them for those of their brethren who had fallen under the sword. They repented of the things which they had done. They didn't just stop committing it. They repented of what they had already committed. Again, a change of mind, a change of heart, a change of beliefs, as well as of behaviors. That's what we're trying to affect. And you can see its result in 25. They threw down their weapons of war. They didn't just relinquish them. 
when their country changed the laws or required disarmament, they threw them down. They didn't even just drop them in submission. They threw them down in disgust, disgust with themselves. The unilateral disarmament actually assured a bilateral disarmament, a mutually assured disarmament. How's that for a better acronym for MAD? That is not MAD at all. But one side had to have the courage to lower the weapon so that the other would feel an inward desire to follow suit. They wouldn't take them again. They were stung for the murders which they had committed. They realized that there was nothing for them to hide behind. No amount of self-justification or rationalization could do anything. They were stung. They came down even as their brethren. They joined them in that. Enemies had become friends over this. Persecutors became partners in the fight. Attackers became advocates. That can only happen from within. They began to rely upon the mercies of those whose arms were lifted to slay them. Talk about a change of heart. Verse 26, It came to pass that the people of God were joined that day by more than the number who had been slain. Those who had been slain were righteous people. Therefore, we have no reason to doubt but what, that they were saved. It's amazing the attitude here, the faith, the perspective. Nothing but good news here. A thousand and five deaths, but no casualties. They're all with God. And more than a thousand and five converts. This is not some kind of, well, it's a net gain for the kingdom of God. No, it was a complete gain on both sides of the veil. 27 seems to say as much. There wasn't a wicked man slain among them, but there were more than a thousand brought to the knowledge of the truth. Thus we see that the Lord worketh in many ways to the salvation of his people. Again, that eternal perspective astonishes me. And then this sad clarification in 28 through the end. Now the greatest number of those of the Lamanites who slew so many of their brethren were Amalekites and Amulonites, the greater number of whom were after the order of the Nehors. Remember Nehor, there's priestcraft enforced by the sword. It's all about my personal prosperity and popularity at the expense of anyone that stands in my way. This is the use of violence in order to get gain. That's Nehor. That's Amlosai. That's Amulon. Come to think of it, that's Cain, as encouraged by the father of lies himself. Kill your brother violence in order to get his flocks gain. We'll see that with the Gadianton robbers. We see it right here. In 29, those who joined the people of the Lord, none were Amalekites, none were Amulonites, only descendants of Laman and Lemuel. Talk about a stark difference. At least we had one good Amalekite before. Now, nope, they're all gone. Of Lamanites' umbrella term, willing to change, Lamanites by lineage converted readily. But Lamanites by choice, former Nephites who had apostatized and dissented, they'd already made their choice. And they weren't going to choose to come back to God. These stark dividing lines speak volumes. They did to Mormon at least. Verse 30, here's his takeaway. And thus we can plainly discern. Hopefully we have the same eyes to see that he did that after a people have been once enlightened by the Spirit of God, 
and have had great knowledge of things pertaining to righteousness and then have fallen away into sin and transgression? Well, here's the natural result. More often than not, they become more hardened and thus their state becomes worse than though they had never known these things. Remember Joseph Smith's statement about that when somebody said, if I left the church, I would just leave it alone. And Joseph said, I don't know if you would. This helps explain Elder Maxwell's oft-quoted statement that people will leave the church but can't leave the church alone. Joseph Smith said, once you have accepted the gospel, truly embraced it, you have left neutral ground forever. Ones who truly took it seriously to begin with tend to still take it seriously once they've left. They're just on an opposite side now and view it still passionately, sometimes still dogmatically, but from a different perspective. Now, I study a lot of anti-Mormonism and ex-Mormonism, and that's not always the case. And I don't think Mormon is suggesting that it always has to be that way. But I would agree with his overall impression that that is the case. The staunchest anti-Mormons are typically ex-Mormons. And they're often the most engaged at getting other people, even those who have never known these things, to view those things from their own skewed perspective. Now, chapter 25 is a shorter one, fairly straightforward, but it gives us a chance to see one more echo of what we've seen before. Kind of the after effects of this first attack against the anti-Nephi-Lehi's. You see in verse 1 that the Lamanites that didn't convert, surely with additional instigation from the Amulonites and Amalekites, those Lamanites were more angry because they had slain their brethren. But who did they blame? They blamed the Nephites. We already saw in chapter 24 that the approach of the anti-Nephi-Lehi's, which removed them from any possibility of deserving blame in this fight, that forced the more sensitive, the softer-hearted among the Lamanites to blame themselves for what they'd done. That's why they were stung. That's why they threw down their weapons. That's why they ended up converting and joining that group. But the Lamanites that were unwilling to blame themselves... You just look harder for some other scapegoat. And if it can't be the anti-Nephi-Lehi's that we were fighting, then it must be the Nephites who we want to fight now. So at the end of 25-1, they stop targeting the anti-Nephi-Lehi's and they look for a group of Nephites that they can take out their frustration on. Guess who they decide on? Verse 2, the people of Ammonihah. You see here, we see the sons of Mosiah witnessing something that Alma had already talked about in a previous chapter the destruction of the city of Ammonihah. Alma and Amulek saw it from their perspective. The people of Ammonihah deserved this because they had driven out every last righteous person whose prayers were keeping destruction at bay. The sons of Mosiah, meanwhile, see it from the Lamanite perspective. Their anger over the conversion of the anti-Nephi-Lehi's, their decision to blame Nephites for it, and let's go take this out on a Nephite city. It's interesting that the Lord saw it from both perspectives and killed two birds with one stone. Or in this case, allowed the wicked to destroy the wicked. That's what the scriptures say will typically happen. After that, verse 3, there's lots of battles between Nephites and Lamanites. We'll see those unfold in subsequent chapters. But in verse 4, among the Lamanites who are slain in these ongoing battles, the most notable casualties are almost all the seed of Amulon and his brethren. Who are they? Remember, the priests of Noah. They're the ones that end up getting slain by the hands of the Nephites. 
any survivors among those Amulonites? It describes in verse 5, flee into the east wilderness, usurp power and authority over the Lamanites there. That's what they do everywhere they go. They cause that many of the Lamanites should perish by fire because of their belief. Now, this is the Lamanite equivalent of Alma 14. When the righteous minority in Ammonihah are committed to the flames. Well, now you have some righteous converts among Lamanites that met the same fate. They perished by fire because of their belief. Where did those believers come from? Why weren't they among the anti-Nephi-Lehi's already? Well, because they hadn't believed early, but they did come to believe later on. Verse 6, many of them, after having suffered much loss and so many afflictions, see the Lord was still working on this clay, trying to soften it so he could mold it and shape it. Because of all that loss and affliction, they began to be stirred up in remembrance of the words which Aaron and his brethren had preached to them in their land. I love that it was Aaron's message. Remember, it, had, it just so happened that he had fallen among a more hardened people. He was told to go plant seeds along the wayside or in the stony ground. And yet time had begun to break up that soil and the seeds began to germinate and they eventually grew. We have no idea what the eventual effects of our testimony will be. I'm so grateful that Aaron taught it, even when it seemed like nobody cared to listen. Well, they just weren't prepared then, but they were prepared later. And the seed that had lain dormant was now ready to grow. They begin to disbelieve the traditions of their fathers. And instead they begin to believe in the Lord that he gave great power unto the Nephites. Remember that discussion that they'd had when Lamoni and his people were all passed out? They're like, oh, those Nephites that the Lord always seems to help. The great spirit's on their side. Well, they're starting to see that as well. And thus there were many of them converted in the wilderness. I love that we get to see a second round. That's kind of what Alma 25 is all about. We saw the conversion of the Lamanites discussed at length in the chapters yesterday. And we saw this first massacre of the anti-Nephi-Lehi's discussed at length in Alma 24. Now in 25, you see round two. People are still joining the church. And unfortunately, they are still facing opposition. Verse 7, the rulers who were the remnant of the children of Amulon caused that they should be put to death. Yea, all those that believed in these things. So whether by the sword or by fire. Among these Lamanites, conversion at the hand of Nephite messengers led to martyrdom at the hand of Nephite apostates. In verse 8, there are other Lamanites caught in between, not believing Aaron's words, but not agreeing with what the Amulonites are doing about it. So they are stirred up to anger. They begin to contend in the wilderness. They hunt down the seed of Amulon and begin to slay them. Verse 9, from his perspective 400 years later, can add, Behold, they are hunted at this day by the Lamanites. That's fascinating. That for centuries, there's just some posterity of Amulon. What problems he caused. This former wicked priest of wicked Noah. Burning believers at every opportunity and leaving ashes everywhere they go. Thus the words of Abinadi were brought to pass, Mormon notes, which he said concerning the seed of the priests who caused that he should suffer death by fire. You see in verse 8, there were 
fence sitters. There were still people, these other Lamanites that didn't believe, even in round two, they didn't follow that group towards Aaron's testimony, but they refused to follow Amulon in his. Just like what happened in Alma 24, where a group of innocent victims forces the issue upon people. You see, with that earlier split, when a decision was forced upon them, if you're not going to look inward and either join the victim or at least stop victimizing them, then you're going to look outward and try to find some scapegoat. Now, the first group that did that choose the people of Ammonihah. We're going to make them the scapegoat, even though they had nothing to do with this particular situation. They deserved it from the Alma and Amulek perspective, but not from this one. Whereas this other group, we're going to take it out on the people that actually caused it all from the start, the people of Amulon. See what's happening here? It's so applicable in our day. I may not yet be ready to become an ally or side with this group, but I can no longer sit idly by and side with this one. That's a first step in a good direction. I cannot be counted as one of them anymore. What's the old saying? For evil to triumph, all it takes is for good people to do nothing. Well, by these good people doing nothing by way of self-protection or fighting back, it forced these people to do something. And even if I cannot yet side with them, I will no longer side with them. In fact, that leads this group to treat this group as enemies. And if the enemy of my enemy is my friend, then they might be getting closer than they think. Now back to Mormon's analysis from 10, 11, 12, he's bringing back Abinadi and letting them know this is exactly as prophesied. As he says at the end of 12, these words were verified. God does indeed vindicate the prophets. Verse 13 then, it came to pass that when the Lamanites saw that they could not overpower the Nephites, they returned again to their own land and many of them came over to dwell in the land of Ishmael and the land of Nephi and did join themselves to the people of God who were the people of anti-Nephi-Lehi. You see the reverberations, the ongoing rounds? This group wasn't ready to join the group initially, but their own hardships and trials prepared them to grow later on. Then they faced the ultimate hardship and trial in their martyrdom, but then still another group sees that and is horrified sees that they cannot beat Nephites, and so their hearts are softened. I love how patient and long-suffering with us Heavenly Father is to give us chance after chance after chance to change, and they do. They join the people of anti-Nephi-Lehi. It reminds me of the stripling warriors that we'll meet in a couple of weeks, where it starts with the 2,000 stripling warriors. That's how we always refer to them. But just wait a little while, and it ends up being 2,060. It's like these last 60, well, they missed the first round of recruitment. They hadn't yet graduated from primary, right? They had, they had one more primary program to sing in, but now they can go join their big brothers. I love that the Lord keeps giving us chances. What seemed like the last chance wasn't actually the last one after all. Now, this group, just like the group that they joined, verse 14, they did also bury their weapons of war according as their brethren had. Talk about creating a new righteous tradition. They began to be a righteous people. They did walk in the ways of the Lord. They did observe to keep his commandments and his statutes. And then verse 15 and 16 describe these commandments and statutes, basically the law of Moses. But to make it more applicable to us, 
Every time you see the phrase, the law of Moses, replace it with works. And you'll see a better understanding for our perspective on where works fit. Back to the, it is by grace that we are saved after all we can do. Verse 15 then, they did keep the law of Moses. They engaged in these works. Why? For it was expedient that they should, that they should keep the law of Moses. As yet, for it was not all fulfilled. All these works that we are engaged in haven't yet fulfilled their purpose, which is not to earn us salvation, right? Go back and watch King Benjamin again. It's to allow us to reconcile our will to God's. Enough practice to develop righteous reflexes, right? So as for now, we're still supposed to be doing this Law of Moses thing, which from the beginning was meant to point us forward to Christ. All of our works are meant to prepare us for Jesus, not to earn salvation, simply to point us to him. So keep doing those. Let them accomplish their purpose. But notwithstanding the Law of Moses, notwithstanding our works, they did look forward to the coming of Christ, considering that the law of Moses, or our works, was a type of his coming. It's preparing us for him. It's pointing us to him. And believing that they must keep those outward performances until the time that he should be revealed unto them. Now, they did not suppose that salvation came by the law of Moses. They got that straight. We should not suppose that our salvation comes by obedience to law or the works that we perform. But... The law of Moses, our works, our outward performances, they serve to strengthen our faith in Christ. Thus we retain a hope through Christ unto eternal salvation. That's what allows us to really exercise saving faith in him, like the lectures on faith describe, because we're doing our part, not to earn anything, but to receive everything. Our wills are being reconciled. That's what the spirit of prophecy does. It helps us rely on those things to come. And now behold, we see at the end, Ammon and Aaron and Omner and Himni, their brethren, did rejoice exceedingly for the success which they had had among the Lamanites, seeing that the Lord had granted unto them according to their prayers, and that he had also verified his word unto them in every particular. I love that last line. We saw that back in verse 12, Abinadi's words were verified. Well, at the end of the chapter, God's words were verified in every particular. I promised your dad back in Mosiah 28 that you would survive. And you have. I promised him that you would have great success. And look all around you at what your missions have accomplished. God is as good as his word. For he is the word. And he keeps that word. What an interesting way to end this part of the account. On the heels of mass martyrdoms, but also mass conversions, the Lord does indeed work in ways to accomplish his purposes. But it is his purposes that he's accomplishing. Every word, every particular being fulfilled. That is a God in whom we can place our trust.